Well, welcome again, and glad to have you here on a rainy day. We needed a rainy day. Had a lot of beautiful days, but everything was getting dry. So thank you, Lord, for that. And um, especially for friends or, or uh, relatives of uh, anybody that just joined or of the Martins, David's baptism, glad to have you here. We, we're well into a series. We're about to wrap up a series on the book of Acts, and we've been looking at this book that comes after the four Gospels this winter and this spring, and we really have just um, just a few left. And last week, Adam was on Acts 16, and the book of Acts has 28 chapters in it. So we're not going to cover the whole book of Acts, as it turns out, but I just feel like it would be almost illegal not to do this chapter. It is the next one. It's so rich. So this is Acts 17. We're going to be start in verse 16. If you don't have a Bible, you can just follow there in the bulletin. That's the passage that I'm going to preach from. But this is the Apostle Paul who, you know, we're watching him travel these different parts of the world, going into major cities, major towns, and this is him going into Athens, the Athens, Greece. Um, 30 years ago, can't believe it was 30 years ago, my friend Philip Palmertree came back from his, uh, his last class of the day. He, he beelined it to the record store and he came back to his dorm room with his fresh vinyl copy of the Joshua Tree, and we sat and we listened to it in its entirety. This is back in olden times when we had record players, and it was very exciting, and I was already a U2 fan, but it was kind of magical to hear it the day it came out. The next year, they came out with Rattle and Hum, U2, Rattle and Hum, and if, if you've ever heard it, the first track of Rattle and Hum is a, is a live track. It was taken from a live recording, and they did a Beatles cover. They, they performed... The Beatles song, Helter Skelter. And if you listen to it on Rattle and Hum, you hear Bono at the beginning say, here's a song Charles Manson stole from the Beatles. We're stealing it back. And the name and even the sound of that song had really become identified with Charles Manson, who had, you know, led his followers to kill these people in high profile. He's still in prison. Um, and it just, it's sort of like the ickiness of all that got identified with the song. And it, and it really was like Charles Manson hijacked this song that was not intended to, to mean that. And so Bono says, hey, he stole it. We're stealing it back. And that popped in my mind thinking about um, so much of what we've seen in Acts in the study so far is just what we call evangelism. You could call it evangelism. You could call it missions. You can call it gospel proclamation. But that word evangelism especially, I, I just, when I stand up here, and I think especially in a churched area, and use a word like evangelism, I feel like the cards are stacked against me because it has so many yucky connotations. And I don't know how that word feels to you. Does it feel like the, the man on Main Street downtown, especially if it's Friday or Saturday night and everybody's up and down or maybe during an artist's fear, something like that, some downtown event, and someone hands you a track, they don't even, they don't even really make eye contact with you, just kind of like, here's this info. Or is it, is it televangelists? You know, is it, the, is it the guy who you just really, it just seems like he's trying to get rich, and that following God means that you can be rich. And we've even merged the words television and evangelism to describe that person. Um... What is, is it the person who stopped by your house and really didn't ask you anything about you? Or if they did, it just seemed very pre-rehearsed and, and scripted. But they're kind of rushing to like say this thing they came to say to you. 
and it's canned. Is that, is that evangelism? And I, I'm not saying that we're required to use that term, but I, I want to steal that term back. Because in Greek, really, the, the way the word looks like, it, it looks like, in, in, as a verb, it looks like to, to gospel somebody. Or to gospelize somebody. To good news somebody, as a verb. And that's really what it's supposed to be. And I want to look at this. And I'm, I don't so much want to look at this passage and say, now here's how Paul did it, and here's how you should do it. Although to some degree, th- there's, there's some truth in that. But what I want you to see is that the way Paul is communicating the good news is consistent with the good news itself. That it's almost like the, the, the method has come out of the soil of the message. The method has grown out of the soil of the message. So let's look at this. Acts chapter 17. Paul has been on one of his journeys with his colleagues. He's, he's waiting on some people. He's in the famous Athens, Greece. So let's pick up in verse 16. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, 
the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for every village, town, city, neighborhood, hut, valley, mountain, where the gospel has ever gone. We pray it will go into all of them and into the hearts of men and women and children. Thank you for the record of your servant, Paul, going into this this remarkable place, Athens. And we pray that as we hear this, that the gospel would be precious to us, that that you would make it precious to us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I mentioned about, you know, uh, being downtown, somebody handing you a tract. And when people hand me tracts, I, I usually hang on to them and put them in a little file. So here's one I got. I think I got this one on Main Street. The title is Heaven or Hell, Which One Will You Choose? About half of it is flames on the front. So which one will you choose is, is uh, immersed in, in fire. But I'm just going to read the first paragraph as it's on the sheet. It's not, I mean, it's just, you know, three pages. Okay, you, if you open this and don't throw it away, you read, Are you going to heaven or to hell? The Bible teaches that many seemingly good people are going to hell because, quote, all have sinned, Romans 3.23. For there is not a just man upon earth that doeth good and sinneth not, Ecclesiastes 7.20. Sin has a price. The Bible states, The soul that sinneth it shall die, Ezekiel 18.4. For the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. How does that hit you? And now I want to be careful here because I, I think that the people that made this and the people that are handing it out are wanting to do the right thing. I mean, just based on the words in here, the folks that wrote this and printed it and distributed it, they want people to believe in Jesus. And I think that the person who's out there handing them out downtown, wherever, that they want people to believe in Jesus. And I would hope that this is a community saying... You know, way to go on both those things, or the same thing. But how does it hit you? Because the first thing, even to me when I open it, it feels like I'm just, I feel like I'm seven minutes into a conversation. And we're throwing words like Ecclesiastes and Ezekiel at people that maybe have zero Bible background. Judgment, eternity, sin, hell. Which one? Immediately, from the get-go. Okay, but the, the other one is just, does it, I'm talking about feelings. Sometimes Presbyterians talk about their feelings. It feels like, does it feel like you like me? Like, when you ask me the, the, the question, heaven or hell, which one will you choose? Do you really want me to choose the right one? Um. Again, I I think when we use a word like evangelism, everybody here, I think especially if you've been here in the South or or you're from the South, you've had an experience of somebody throwing data at you. And if I'm not assuming that everybody here believes in the Bible or regards it as authoritative, but if you do, then you would say, yeah, I, I agree with things like that. I agree with those citations, 
but it feels like you don't care if you know me or I know you or how I'm doing or did my relative just die or am I unemployed or am I depressed? It's like, I've got this presentation and let's get through this and it's with you how it shakes out. I really don't care because I'm going to the next person. And this passage is such a beautiful contrast because you've got Paul really putting himself out there. When I, and when I say putting himself out there, Athens was not in its glory days when he got there. Its real peak would have been the 4th or 5th century B.C. But still, you had the cultural remnants of a golden era. And you've got the Parthenon on the hill. You've got these statues everywhere. More about that in a second. You've got literary richness, poetic richness, cultural richness. Uh, a thick culture like we talk about. A thick culture. And here's Paul, who knows Greek thought, putting himself sort of in the epicenter of it. He is putting himself out there, and it's intimidating. But the way he communicates the gospel rings true with the gospel itself. So I want to look at this. What, what's it like? And here's my points. Uh, first, evangelism comes from love. Evangelism comes from love. Second, evangelism begins with God. Not us. And third, evangelism happens with urgency. So, comes from love, begins with God, happens with urgency. Okay, first off, evangelism, if I can steal that term back, comes from love. Love for God or love for people? Yes. Now, how do you see the love for God? Look in verse 16. The account starts out, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. And there's, there's a couple of terms in there that are hard to translate. When it says that the city is full of idols, you might just think, yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of statues there. There's even Greek historical accounts that say things like, at this point in time, Athens was, like one writer said, was one big altar. Or another uh, Greek writer said that it was like a, a forest of statues. And I saw one commentator that said you could translate the Greek there to say that the city was smothered with idols. It's not just that it has a lot of it. It's just, it's underneath. There's just statues and shrines and depictions and temples everywhere. But, but the term I really want you to pay attention to is it's, uh, that, that Luke, Luke wrote Acts says that Paul's spirit was provoked. And that word, we don't use that word a lot. And it could just kind of sound like Paul's there. He's kind of got his tourist bags with him. And, you know, he's just kind of standing on the corner. And he looks around. There's a lot of idols. And he just kind of goes. <laughs> it, it's way stronger than that. Um, the, and I'm really indebted to a guy named John Stott. Wonderful writer, pastor, thinker. His commentary on Acts. That he said, to, uh, there's been a lot of ink spilled about what that word means. That Greek term provoked. If you look at the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, and that was the version of what we call the Old Testament that most of the reading world would have known, the Septuagint, Greek. The word that's used to describe how God in the Old Testament responds to idol worship is this verb. And um, it's not a gentle verb. God looks on man. And first off, it is an affront to him 
But also because God cares about people, he sees that they are destroying themselves by worshiping everything but me. And he's emotionally involved in it. That emotional response is the verb that Luke grabs to say how like God rubbed off on Paul. That's how he responds when he looks around. Here's the irony of it. Paul grew up thinking he knew God. He grew up thinking that he knew the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it wasn't until he met the risen Christ that he came to know God and be reconciled to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to to really know him and love him and know that he is loved by him and commune with him deeply. And so here's Paul looking around and he knows that to whatever degree you actually buy into this or believe it or give your heart to this, you will not have what I have. And it upsets him. Because he loves God and he loves people. How do, you, how do you see the love of people? Look in verse 22. And I, I got to set this up. Okay, this is Paul who wrote the New Testament books that say Paul. Read Romans chapter 1 if you want to see how Paul feels about idol worship. Let's just say it's not mild. Very firm. Very direct. We are ripe for the judgment of God because of our idol worship. Worshiping the creature rather than the creator. Now that same Paul is in Athens. Idols everywhere. How does he talk to them? Does he walk in kind of like you know, knock his serape back and have the revolvers on his hip, just like, just ready to just blow people away. I've never stood quite like that on on stage before. Verse 22, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. That that is like a best-case scenario of how to be winsome, how to be respectful, because he's not lying. So what does he commend? He starts off by saying, I can tell that religion matters to you. Just look around. At verse 23, For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. He doesn't go in with a scorched earth presentation. He comes in and finds a way to meet them halfway. Why? Because he wants them to keep listening. It's not manipulation. It's love. And look at what he does in verse 28. This is really wonderful. In the bulletin, you'll see these quotes in italics. And the reason that we put these in italics is those are quotes that Paul is using in his speech. But they're not Bible quotes. They're quotes of Greek writers. And he's doing this off the cuff. Verse 28, he says, well, let me start a little bit before verse 28. God is actually not far from each one of us for, quote, in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Uh, That quote, we are indeed his offspring, was from a Greek poet writing about Zeus. And this almost seems like a dangerous thing to do. Paul takes that lyric which is actually true about the one true God, takes their familiar lyric and says, you know like it says, we are God's offspring? That's true, but it's true of the God that I'm here to tell you about. I want you to know him. 
You have a monument saying you're ignorant of this God. I want you to know this God. And before we go any further, let me just say the obvious. People don't want to be talked to like their projects. People do not want Christians, really any religion, but people don't want us to come like we are the personification of a data dump that all we have to do is data dump and move on. People want to know that we care about them. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the, the movie The Big Kahuna, uh, Kevin Spacey, Danny DeVito, but they play two salesmen and, and th- this movie takes place when they're on a sales trip and there's a third salesman who's an evangelical Christian and he's using this place as, as a way to evangelize. And we would say, okay, great, you know, spread the gospel. But Danny DeVito's character in this movie takes him to task and says, you know what, anytime you grab a conversation and you steer it where you want it to go and you don't ask that person about their life, their kids, their background, wherever they are in life, then all you are is a marketing rep. And it upsets this evangelical Christian character. And Danny DeVito's character says, no, I'm sorry. When you do that, you're you're no different than somebody who's selling Buddha or real estate with no money down. When it's just, here's my presentation, here's my shtick, and I don't care about you. Evangelism begins with first, having really come into a relationship with God and loving Him and enjoying Him. And then, actually loving other people. And looking around with eyes of empathy to say, this is not so much about me like winning an exchange or having the coolest, you know, I'm going to like top your cool quote with my cool quote. It's the empathy of, man, God opened my eyes. If he can open my eyes, he can open anybody's eyes. And I want you to see this. Because he's the one your heart really craves, whether you're able to know that right now or not. Now, that's that's a good setup for the second point. Um, Evangelism begins with God. It comes from love. It begins with God. A couple of things here. God as creator and God as personal. Look in verse 24. God as creator. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. And picture where Paul is standing. He's in Athens and the Parthenon is right above him. That you can't miss it. And if you've ever been to Athens, which I haven't, or if you've ever been to Nashville, where I used to live, there's a life-size replica of the Parthenon that I used to live about three blocks from. It is an architectural masterpiece. It's sitting right above him, and Paul is talking to these people. I mean, that's like the crown jewel of their cultural achievement. And he says, you know, this God does not live in temples. He can't. He made everything. He made the universe. The universe cannot contain him. How could he live in a building that we made? He's the creator. And the way Paul talks is not, he created you. It's he created everybody. Which is what? That's a point of contact. He created us. And before I move on to God as personal, you may think that, okay, well, everybody's heard that about God. Everybody's heard about God, that God is the creator. No, they have not. I have a pastor friend a few hours from here, pastor in the south, 
he had a homeless man stop by the church one day, and uh, they got to talking. And so my friend said, hey, why don't you just sit and have a cup of coffee with me, and let's just talk. And so he's sitting talking to this guy. And this man just, he verbalized that he sort of felt like a piece of trash. And my friend said, all right, I want you to look at what you're doing right now. You're holding this cup of coffee, and just your ability to move it or blow on it or smell it or think about it or sip on it, You're doing that in a way that no other creature can do. Do you know why you can do that? It's because you're made in God's image. You bear the image of God. And the man started crying. And he said, no one has ever told me that. God is the creator. And God is personal. Look, this is a great little juxtaposition here. Look at verse 25. Uh, nor is he, we said he's not, he doesn't live in temples, verse 25, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So, all right, he doesn't need us. God doesn't need your offerings, your money, fruit offerings. He doesn't need us. And if you stop there, what would that sound like? God is big, he made you and he doesn't need you. But then what does he say? Verse 27. After Paul says, God spread people out, put them where they're supposed to be. Why? Verse 27. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us. Again, this is amazing that this is Paul. Because Paul doesn't mind telling you things like, You don't naturally seek God. He doesn't mind telling you we are separated from God by our sin. But the way he shows God to them is that God spread everybody out over the whole earth. They all come from one person. So we're all really family. At some level, the human family. He spreads them out over the earth and he wants them to feel their way toward him. And Paul says he's actually not far from each one of us. Like the God I'm telling you about doesn't hate you and he's looking at you from a distance. He's near and he wants you to reach for him. And, and good, I mean, wow. Uh, contrast that when you've seen a picture of some kind of protest or some kind of public gathering and somebody has a sign there that says something like, God hates gays. Okay, so like I, I had time to think about what, what, what am I going to get printed, what am I going to order at the printers to hold at this gathering as sort of like, what am I going to lead with of what I want people to know about God? Here's who God hates. And you've got the apostle saying, he's not far from you. He puts you where you're supposed to be. He wants you to reach out and find him. He doesn't need you, but he wants you to know him. Um, does that still work? That feels so pragmatic to say it that way. Does it still work? It is still a point of contact between us and anybody that we ever interact with that deep down, again, Paul, Romans 1, deep down, we know there is God. Uh, I've never met anyone... Not saying they don't exist, but I've never met anyone 
mad at the gods. I've heard people refer to the gods in kind of a jokey way. Like I had a bad day, the gods must be mad at me. I've never met anyone mad at the gods. When I've met people that, that are mad about deity, they're mad at God. Because they know he's there. And I've quoted to you what C.S. Lewis said before he was converted. He said, before I became a Christian, I maintained two things. I maintained that God did not exist, and I was angry at him for not existing. <laughs> and that is a lot of people. It's any of us till God changes our heart. When you're talking with somebody, and I'm thinking here especially of somebody intimidating or smarter, you know, they read The Economist and I don't. Or they read all the cool blogs and I don't. Or they majored in blah, blah, blah and I didn't. And they can win the argument and they're smarter than me and you feel like they're just going to tie you in knots. You need to understand, deep, they may have suppressed it hard, but they know he's God. The one true God. He wrote that on our heart. But the last thing is this, is that evangelism, it happens with urgency. Or I might even say it happens because of urgency. I love 16 and 17, this, this little word at the, at the beginning of 17. Let me just start at 16 again. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. And here's a, here's a beautiful word. So, so he reasoned. Where? Name it. If it was the Sabbath, go to the synagogue. If it's a work day, go to the market where the people are. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. He ends up at the Areopagus. The Areopagus, that was the name of a, of a place and of a, a group, a council. It's kind of like in the way that we say Wall Street to mean the physical location in New York City and the stuff that goes on on Wall Street. The Areopagus was the, the meeting place and the group. When Paul stands up there, he, he is putting himself out there. And Paul wasn't devoid of things like wanting people to like him and not wanting to feel stupid or not wanting to be made fun of. He's a human being. But he places himself in some ways in harm's way. Why? Because someone has to say it. And he is a witness of Jesus Christ that God has put there then and there. And he has the opportunity to say it. And here's the thing. Um, he starts with God, and he's motivated by love, and he finds points of connection. He quotes their people back to them. Does he soft pedal? Does he give them just like a little kind of gospel light? Well, look down in verse 30. The times of ignorance... And remember, he's talking to them about the unknown God. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. He tells them the truth. 
There is one true God. We all come from the same human family. God wants us to know him. There is a coming judgment. There is only one person who can rescue you in that day of judgment. God has shown who that man is through the resurrection of the dead. And by the way, when Paul said the resurrection of the dead, that flew all over them. Because in Greek thought, heaven was to shed the body. For your soul to fly like a bird into the divine, not have this physical cage anymore. For him to say, I want to tell you about a man who's the answer to everything, who died and rose again physically. Ugh. And he knew they would respond that way, and he said it anyway. Why? Because it's true. Um, God has put people all around us. He still moves the pieces just the way he wants your neighbors, your co-workers, the people you do stuff with, the people you have history with. We have the opportunity to speak into their lives, to find points of connection, speak in love, but to really say the whole gospel. Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, the bad news. And the good news. Uh, I suspect there's a good many people sitting here right now, maybe thinking something along along these lines. I agree. I, ju- I just can't do it. I, I I just cannot do it. It is it is so awkward. I'm so not good at it. It's so weird. I, I people please. I want people to like me back. I don't want them to get mad at me for broaching that. I think, I'm not sure, I think I could scold you so hard I could get you to evangelize this week. And I think you would drop it like a hot potato next week. And I may not even be able to scold you enough to do it this week. Because scolding and shame and duty doesn't have staying power. You know what has staying power? Is where it's such good news... That out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. I don't have to walk to work going, I will evangelize today. You know, like it's on my to-do list. It comes out because it's in there. Well, how could that ever happen? Well, ask yourself, what are the barriers to talking to my coworker, friend, neighbor about Jesus? Well, I'm prideful. And uh, I don't care about them as much as I care about my own feelings. And I need to be liked. Those would be some biggies. You want to hear something amazing? God sent Jesus for people who are prideful and arrogant and need to be liked. God sent Jesus for people who fear the people around us more than we fear Him. To take away our sins. And to break the power of sin. And if that really gets deep down in our bones, it's not just that we can. We will speak out of the overflow of our heart because it's going to actually be good news. And I'll go ahead and say this. If you have never talked to somebody else about the gospel, if you have never (gasps) evangelized somebody, the first time you do it, it's going to feel like an out-of-body experience. It's going to be like you're saying it to the person and you're kind of off to the side going, 
this may not pan out at all. Or you may be off to the side going, you are botching this. I'm ashamed of us. Let's put ourselves out there. Let's put ourselves out there. Not because somebody's cracking the whip over you, but it's such good news. We're wanting to see people reconciled to the God whose image they bear and whose heart knows deep down that he's there. And it's good news. Let me end with this. um, A young man that worked for me when I was a campus minister at Vanderbilt while he was there, he, uh, he just wanted to meet somebody and find somebody and get married. And so he, he, he met somebody and he was smitten and she did not like him back. And so I remember at one point he was sitting in my office and this was just one of the most candid, honest things I've ever heard somebody say related to romance. He just sat, sat down in my office and he just kind of put his head down and went, Ugh, man, I wish she would like me back. I thought, no one says that. You know, it's like we're all trying to save face and not look hurt by it. And you said it like, I just wish she liked me back. And she ended up liking him back and they're married now. I know that you like closure in these stories that I tell. (laughs) Married, it worked, okay. But evangelism that's driven by, we got a lot of work to do so we better roll up our sleeves. I don't think it has staying power. And I don't think it's going to sound to the hearer like love. But evangelism that feels like, man, I want you to know him. I can't make you know him. But man, I just, you may think I'm a hayseed. They called Paul that, a seed picker, a babbler. I want you to know him. And find this good news. Let's pray that God would do that in our hearts. That we might be witnesses in Greenville. And to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. So Father, we ask now that you would in some way show us the bad news about ourselves. We, we have let pride. We have let fear of man. We have let uh, resistance to awkwardness. We've let those things set the terms and we have not feared you and we have been silent. Let us see that Christ has taken away our sins. That he's broken the power of pride. He's broken the power of the fear of man in us. And we may be your witnesses here. Would you, Lord, give us love for those around us? Would you re-amaze us or amaze us for the first time that you would want us to know you so much that you sent your son. And we pray in his name. Amen.